and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry and today we have a special guest joining us who's currently working as a psychiatrist in Stoke. So I'm going to hand you over to Dr. Rebecca Chubb. Hello, I'm Dr. Becky Chubb and I work uh, half of my week in old age psychiatry in Stoke-on-Trent and then half of my week in liaison psychiatry in a large acute trust. Excellent. Thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. And today's focus is going to be on the interface between liaison psychiatry and medicine. It's something that we see in hugely increasing numbers, definitely in the last couple of years, as a large number of psychiatric patients coming through the medical tape. And I think it's really important and we're really lucky to have somebody who works in liaison psychiatry and to get their view on how it all works. So we're going to work through a case and I'm going to hand you over to Bex to start with a case. Um, so the case I've got is a lady that I saw some time ago now and I think it's a really interesting case for a number of reasons. Um, she was an 82-year-old lady who I was asked to see on one of the rehab wards, so in one of our smaller community hospitals. And... Um, I was asked to see her really because of her behaviour and there was some disagreement as to how she should be managed and also disagreement over what the diagnosis was and what they should do with this lady. So I went on the ward to go and see this lady and before I'd even got to her room, I was greeted by her running down the corridor in her nightie. So I thought, gosh, I better just go and see her. So um, I went in to meet this lady and perhaps if I give you a bit of a description of... Um, the lady that I had in front yes, of please, me. that would be good. She was dressed in a nightgown and she was uh, quite restless. So she was up and down and fidgety. She was rearranging personal items in a bedroom. She was clearly finding it really, really difficult to sit still for really more than about 30 seconds at a time. Um, she had quite a fast speech. Um, but it was normal in, in volume um, and she was quite over familiar. So as I walked into the room, she smiled at me. She came over to greet me. She wanted to hug me. She placed her hands on my face, which um, felt a little bit uncomfortable mm. to say the least. Um, mood, subjectively, she actually described feeling really, really rubbish. She said she was feeling up and down and that she knew she was getting angry and that wasn't like her at all. Objectively, I thought she actually looked quite elated. So she broke into song at one point. She was singing, she was laughing, and, and it was just quite incongruent with the situation. Um, in terms of hallucinations, she denied any, and she certainly didn't look as though she was responding to any non-apparent stimuli at the time. Um, thought content was okay. That was varied. It was appropriate to the topic of conversation, but her thought form was abnormal. So she was quite tangential. Um, Sorry, can you just recap what tangential means? <laughs> sure. <just> so, you... <laughs> so when you asked her a question, her responses will be quite erratic and she might start off as if she's going down the right direction, but then go off on a tangent and end up at something completely different and irrelevant to the question that you'd asked. Um, she was reported as being really confused, but actually when you spoke to her, she was completely orientated. So she knew exactly where she was. She knew the date. She knew why she'd been in hospital. 
She knew how long she'd been there. But I think the reason she came across as confused was because she was so um, so difficult to focus. She couldn't concentrate for any length of time that she just went off all the time. So I think she came across as confused, but actually I think it was a lack of concentration um, rather than true confusion and disorientation. And interestingly, if you could hold her attention long enough to ask her how she felt, she could actually give you a really beautiful description. So she would say, I'm going too fast. I'm going over time. I can't switch off. I can't switch my head off. Which was a really lovely description, I think, of exactly how she presented. Um, I didn't do full cognitive testing, but like I say, she was completely orientated. So that was the lady that I had in front of me on that day. Okay. Any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, was she under the medical team at this point on the rehab ward? She was under the medical team, yes. Okay. And they'd asked for a psychiatric opinion. They had, yes. Okay. So I think I'd have to go right the way back to basics. Yeah. Um, and if she was put in front of me, um, take a full history, collateral history from family or friends or anybody who knew her. Um, obviously, I'd want to do a physical examination as well to corroborate your mental state examination that you've just described to me. There is so much going on here. I think the key things that I'm going to pick out of the description are, number one, she's orientated in time and place which is a positive thing, but orientation can fluctuate. So it could be a fluctuating confusion, delirium. She had, she was unable to concentrate. Again, that can fit with delirium in some circumstances. So I'd be thinking around that. Unable to switch off ahead, again, could be delirium. But she had insight, yeah. which makes delirium... It's unlikely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what felt odd to me it's as odd. well. Yeah. I'd be worried from a physical perspective. I'd be thinking, is this infection? Yeah. How does she have delirium? Is this dementia? I there's yeah, it's it's difficult. Um Shall I help you out a bit yes, and give you some more <laughs> medical details? Yes. Yeah. So after I'd seen her, I went back and sat and went through all of her notes. Yeah. And I think in liaison psychiatry, this is quite typical. You often come in kind of further down the line. Um, um, and not kind of at the front door where you perhaps might pick this lady up. So when we went back, she um, had come into hospital about three weeks prior to when I saw her. Yeah. And she'd originally come into the acute trust. And what had brought her into hospital was originally query stroke. So when you go back and you look at the collateral history, what her family said was about five days before she came into hospital yeah. there's some vague reports from her neighbors that she just wasn't her normal self so for example they'd gone up and spoken to her and she came across as being more abrupt than normal but that's it then about 24 48 hours before she presents she starts looking increasingly confused and muddled and her speech starts becoming slurred now, at this point, her family start getting worried that she's had a stroke and bring her into A&E. And indeed, initially, it looks like they worked her up as a query stroke. Yeah. So obviously, they did a CT head scan. Didn't show anything acute, but it did comment on some frontotemporal lobe atrophy. 
um, and also some moderate small vessel disease, but nothing acute. So this frontal temporal lobe atrophy could be consistent with her unusual presentation, uh, change in personality. Sure, yep. So that could fit with frontal temporal dementia, possibly. Yeah, I think certainly in terms of the lobes of the brain that are affected, certainly that would fit. The timeline doesn't fit. Yes, it's too acute. Okay, yep. So, um, again, they did routine bloods, um, tested a urine, chest x-ray, kind of all the normal kind of stuff. And and there wasn't any other acute findings. There didn't appear to be any infection on board, anything like that. So from a confusion perspective then, Mm -hmm. they checked calcium, which was normal. Yeah. They did electrolytes and make sure sodium was checked potassium, kidney function was normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she had some mild chronic kidney disease, but, yeah. you know, she's 82, nothing unusual and nothing acute. Okay, so she wasn't anemic? Nope. Okay, white cells were normal? They were normal. CRP was normal. Liver function was normal? Liver function was normal. Blood glucose was normal? Yes. Okay, so this is where we start to panic and go, well, everything's normal. We, yes. We don't, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. So... Within 24 hours of her coming into hospital, yep. she then has two tonic-clonic seizures. Ah, okay. Then looks as though it changes the direction of the investigations under the medical team. Yeah. So she then goes for an EEG. Okay. Shall I tell you what the EEG shows? Yeah, this is interesting because she's had nothing in her history so far that's suggestive at all of any form of... Epil- or no, seizure no. activity or epilepsy. never has any history of epilepsy at all. No. So I'm now really worried about, number one, her sodium, although you said it was normal the day before. Number two, her glucose, because hypoglycemic can contribute towards seizure activity. And is this infection? Is this an encephalitis? Because that can also present with similar sort of things. So these sort of things are going around in my head now. And just to let you know, in terms of her past medical history, we said she's got no history of epilepsy. But actually, all she's got in her past medical history is hypertension. So for an eighty-two-year-old, okay. actually, yeah. she was a pretty fit and well, healthy and independent eighty-two-year-old. Okay, yeah. So EEG at that point shows single partial seizure arising from the left frontotemporal region. So that I think accounts for possibly some of her symptoms and some of her presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, They also go on to do an MRI head as well. The MRI head again confirms that there's moderate small vessel disease, but interestingly doesn't comment on on any frontotemporal atrophy. That was picked up on the CT head. Okay. Um, And then like you said, you were worried about possible encephalitis. Mm. Yeah. So when you look back at the blood, she had full autoantibody screen for encephalitis. Um, and again, all of the bloods all came back negative for encephalitis and there was nothing on the MRI that was suggestive of encephalitis either. Did she have a lumbar puncture done? She did have a lumbar puncture done and yeah. again, that was all normal. So when you were saying she had an antibody screen for encephalitis, you're talking about limbic encephalitis yes. and the more sort of antibody mediated encephalitis. Yeah. Okay, so rare, but again, can happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think you can tell when you read through the notes, I think you can tell that physicians were thinking, not really sure what yeah. might be accounting for these symptoms in this presentation. 
And it certainly was unusual, definitely. Perhaps. Do you, throughout any of this, what were our observations like physically? As far as I know, because I wasn't involved at that point, yeah. she was physically quite stable. Okay. She didn't have any temperature spikes? No, no, no. Nothing like that. Okay. So at this point, was she on treatment for encephalitis? At this point, um, yes, they'd originally treated her kind of prophylactically as encephalitis. With acyclovir intravenously? Sure. And then once they got the evidence back that actually there was no evidence of encephalitis. Okay. So they treated her for encephalitis with acyclovir intravenously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. What happened next? Because I'm still pretty lost in actually really what's going on with this lady. So what happened next was it would appear from the notes that they got to the point where they were satisfied that, you know, there wasn't anything significant accounting for her seizure. So there wasn't any evidence of, you know, a tumour or infection or anything worrying. Um, but her presentation hadn't really settled. So they had started on anti-epileptic treatment. Mm -hmm. She had a follow-up EEG and that confirmed actually that the anti-epileptic treatment had worked quite nicely and the seizure activity had settled down. But her presentation yeah. clinically hadn't really changed. Medically, she was stable, but she was still very restless, not her normal self, speaking really quickly and basically everything I described at the start of the case. So that to me sounds, to my non-psychiatric mind, quite manic. Yes. Are we missing a psychiatric condition like mania? Bipolar. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would have guessed it's unusual in an 82-year-old to present, but I, I assume that's probably why you were invited to come and see the patient. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you'd said to me when I first saw this lady, oh, she's got a diagnosis of bipolar affective disorder, I wouldn't have been at all surprised. I would have thought, yeah, this absolutely looks like a hypomanic episode. Okay. Yeah. But she has no history of bipolar affective disorder. And like you say, randomly developing bipolar at the age of 82 would be extraordinarily unusual. When I saw her on the ward, part of the difficulty was that this lady was deemed to be medically stable. Okay, so we've... The, Physicians have kind of ruled out anything acute. They're not really treating her for anything medically anymore. Um, and really, they're wanting to know where to move this lady to. Okay, So she's been in hospital three weeks now. And often I get called at the point where people are wanting to move people on, but they're not really sure what to do with them. So just to recap then, we have an 82-year-old lady who's got hypertension, but apart from that, no significant past medical history mm -hmm. to note. She presented, as we've discussed, and she's had numerous medical investigations, CT, LPs, MRIs, blood tests. Everything's normal apart from the CT head, which showed frontal temporal changes. Yep. The MRI, which showed moderate small vessel disease, and she had an EEG which showed seizure activity in the temporal region. So currently, from a medical perspective, she's being treated for epilepsy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. With an anti-epileptic treatment. Yeah. Okay. And that's where we're at. So at the point of me seeing her, um, I was a little bit concerned because when I read her medical notes, um, she'd been diagnosed with frontotemporal lobe dementia. 
And the plan at that point was to start a social care process for this lady to go into 24-hour EMI care. And EMI is? Elderly Mentally Infirm, which is quite an old archaic. I know it doesn't sound very good, but really it means a care home that has a level of expertise in mental illness. Um, My concern was that clinically... There was no evidence that this was a dementia. And I think this is a key point that I see really, really often that people will read a scan result and interpret that to mean there's a dementia there and forget that dementia is a clinical diagnosis. There is no test per se for it. It's a clinical diagnosis. And remember, before this lady came into hospital, she had no package of care. She had family that might do some shopping for her. But other than that, she was completely independent. There was no history of personality change. There was no history of cognitive impairment, nothing at all. And so I felt quite quite strongly that, A, clinically, this didn't fit with the dementia, but also for this lady to go straight into 24-hour care just felt it didn't sit right with me. So we had a chat with the staff and we said, look, you know, I don't think this fits with a dementia. And our expectation at this point needs to be that this lady should and could get better. Um, but I think it's hard, isn't it, on the wards? There's so much pressure for beds. Yes, that's very true. And there's so much pressure to come to a conclusion, to make a plan, to make a diagnosis and say categorically what is going on and what is wrong with this person and to move this person on. And I think that's what had happened with this lady, that there was such pressure to kind of create certainty where actually there was quite a lot of uncertainty still um, that it resulted in in that diagnosis, which wasn't clinically appropriate at all. Mm, I think that highlights the clear thing that as, as a physician, as physicians, we do not like diagnostic uncertainty because it makes us feel uncomfortable and it makes us feel like we're not doing our job properly because patients or individuals come to us to find out what's going on. Yeah. And I think we often diagnose too early and we often label patients as well. And it sounds like in this particular case, she was given a label of dementia with not with very little clinical signs suggestive of dementia. And the problem I find is when a patient is given a diagnosis, it's very difficult to then retract that diagnosis. It's really hard. And I think especially with a diagnosis like dementia, what you tend to see then if you if you look at the story is that lots and lots of things get automatically put down to the dementia. And we kind of stop looking for other reasons and other causes of what might be going yes. on. And also I've, what happens, I know at some hospitals is they the discharge summary now gets pre-filled with their previous diagnoses. So it's this case where this the patient will have diagnosis of dementia and it's filled in on every single subsequent discharge summary, but may or may not have it. And that's a real concern because then the diagnosis just gets this diagnostic momentum Absolutely. and continues. Absolutely. In this lady's case, um, I mean, I appreciate she was quite difficult to manage on the ward. Um, she was going in and out of other patients' bedrooms and fiddling with notes on the nurse's desk. So I appreciate she, you know, she was quite difficult to manage. So what we did in the end was we did actually agree to start her on a small dose of an antipsychotic. So in this case, we used some olanzapine. 
And how much did you use? 2.5 milligrams initially. And then after a week, we went up to five milligrams, so 2.5 BD. Um, and that did settle things down enough. And I think it was just reiterating to the team that, do you know what? She's 82 and it might take her a little bit longer for things to settle down, but we might just have to give her a bit of time. And eventually that was what happened. So she did settle down. Um, she did go home initially with a package of care, but that was no longer needed after a few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my colleagues followed her up and I'm happy to say she is completely back to her normal self. Wow. She is independent and her family change her sheets once a week, do yeah. some shopping and that is it. That's incredible. So and the thought that she could have ended up in EMI nursing care, just, mm. it, it would have been heartbreaking. So it raises a lot, got a lot of questions. It raises a lot of thoughts and certainly how we practice and how we are determined to give somebody a diagnosis, whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. Um, so this patient's presenting complaint and all these unusual symptoms, what was it? I spoke to my geriatrician colleagues about this case because yeah. in all honesty, I didn't really know the answer either. Was it some kind of odd, prolonged post-ictal delirium? Uh -huh. Um, that just, you know, took a long time to settle down. Um, their opinion was that if you look back at her original presentation, this may have all been frontotemporal seizure activity. And that might have been the whole story the whole way through. Okay. Um, and just for her, yeah, it just took a long time to settle down. So this, so this highlights then that a patient, 82, can present with the first diagnosis of seizure activity, which could be epilepsy. And it may have been going on for a long, lot longer, but just not been known about. It's possible. I mean, um, the geriatricians that I spoke to said, you know, from their point of view, if you've ruled out, you know, any other cause for suddenly developing seizures, yes. the fact that she's got moderate small vessel disease, that probably is the reason. And they weren't particularly concerned about looking for any other causes, assuming that you've already ruled out the significant stuff. Okay. So she was hypertensive. Mm -hmm. We know that, which is a risk factor for developing the moderate small vessel disease, which she had yeah. picked up on the MRI scan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that is a risk factor strong enough for the development of seizure activity. And what anti-epileptic drug did they use? So initially she was started on Keppra. Okay. But there was some concern that the Keppra might actually have been making her behaviour and her presentation worse. So she was switched to sodium valproate. And I think the thinking there was we could use a sodium valproate as an anti-epileptic, but also as a mood stabiliser. I think clinically, in actual fact, it probably didn't make a lot of difference, mm -hmm. but that was the thinking behind them switching to sodium valproate. Okay. And Keppra, or also known as levetiracetam, mm -hmm. is something that we're definitely using a lot more mm -hmm. in clinical practice. Really interesting case and a really lovely ending. Yes. It's nice to have one with a happy ending, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think your role in that patient's care was from the psychiatric perspective? Um, honestly, my main role was probably a bit of advocacy more than anything else, mm. actually. That's it was probably being an outside pair of eyes mm -hmm. where I don't have the same pressure of beds and patient flow because at the end of the day, they're not under my care. And I think sometimes that's quite helpful, actually, the fact that 
I don't have that same pressure. I can come in as an outsider and kind of look at the whole story, but probably as an advocate, really. And I guess it's about sometimes you just need somebody to press the pause button and just say, hang on, this doesn't fit. This doesn't feel right. Maybe we need to be doing something a bit different. And that's a very useful role that you have because... Again, when a patient's got a diagnosis, we anchor onto that diagnosis. We use our diagnostic momentum and often we don't see what's going on in front of us because we use, all of our cognitive biases are at play. So when somebody has a completely new set of eyes, it's very, very helpful. And I don't think we use that enough, actually. Interestingly, the family were saying exactly the same thing. The family were saying, but hang on a minute, five weeks ago, she was completely normal. She was absolutely fine. It's very interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. And it's also made me realise that actually um, to question diagnoses of dementia yeah. and delirium more. It's something that I see really, really commonly um, that um, people rely on scans and think you diagnose off scans. Mm. And that's quite common. Um, and I think I get asked a lot to come and diagnose people with dementia whilst they're acutely unwell in hospital. And there are some circumstances where that might be appropriate. You know, somebody where perhaps for whatever reason, they're not going to be able to get to a memory clinic. You know, it is appropriate, but they're the unusual ones. The vast majority of cases, I think, again, I think physicians really like to have an explanation for everything. And I think when people are inpatients, people like to be able to kind of get as much done, kind of as much bang for your buck as possible while they're an inpatient and get all of those diagnoses done. But from our point of view, it just doesn't work. You know, often there's an element of delirium there while they're acutely unwell. In terms of your cognitive testing, it's going to be completely skewed by the fact that they're in hospital and they're not in their normal surroundings. They're always going to perform worse. And I think also there's a misunderstanding with memory clinic that memory clinic is about labelling somebody with a diagnosis. And it is about diagnosing, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot more to it than that as well. It's about the conversations with families. It's about talking about lasting power of attorney, about driving, about post-diagnostic support, about all of that other stuff that if you just make that diagnosis when someone's acutely unwell in hospital, the family and the person miss out on all of that other stuff. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you have a, a role in the outpatient setting very significantly. You did just pick up on a point there about driving. Yes. And just a key learning point that I want to raise is driving and epilepsy. And that as clinicians, we have a responsibility to inform the patient that they cannot drive when they have had a seizure um, or they are known to have epilepsy. There are different types of epilepsy, whether you lose consciousness, whether it's awake, whether you're asleep, has different guidance. And this is all very, very well detailed on the government website. It's a very useful learning tool to look at. It's something we get asked quite a lot in memory clinic as well, yeah. less yeah. from a seizure point of view, but from a dementia point of view. And what are the rules with driving and dementia? It's on a case-by-case -case basis, so you have to inform the DVLA yeah. if your diagnosis is just the same as a seizure or many other physical yeah. health conditions, but there's no automatic ban. 
Um, sometimes we recommend people go for an independent driving test. Mm -hmm. If there's any uncertainty, go and get that done. Um, depending on where you are, sometimes people have to pay for that now, though, which is a little bit tricky. Um, but certainly they have to inform the DVLA of it. And for some people, do you know what? That's enough for them to say, okay, you know, let's call it a day in terms of driving. Thank you very much. So just to recap some key learning points from today's podcast then, um, I think for me, um, the, the key one that you mentioned was dementia is not a diagnosis on a scan. It's, a, it's multifactorial. We have to take in lots of different factors. So we definitely need to remember that. Um, that epilepsy can occur in later age. You know, it's probably you think of as a not as a diagnosis of exclusion. It's not at the top of your list, but you do want to exclude other things like infection that could also contribute to similar findings. And also what I really liked was your description as how we could use you as an extra set of eyes. And now you can sometimes just put a completely different perspective on a case that we have just completely missed because we've been blinkered by either a previous diagnosis or what we've seen for the last however yeah, many absolutely. Weeks. And also the use of olanzapine. So even though she didn't have a psychiatric illness, that she still did have some symptoms that were difficult to manage and some behaviour that was difficult to manage, that lanzapine 2.5 increasing to 5 milligrams BD is actually a good atypical antipsychotic to use um, in these type of situations. And um, I would also say that we know, of course, antipsychotics cause with lots of problems and side effects mm -hmm. in older people. So I wouldn't advocate kind of using antipsychotics, no. you know, without some careful consideration. But at the end of the day, the thing that I guess swayed my decision to try it was that actually she was really distressed by it. If it was just that she was a bit difficult to manage, that would be different. We would have to find another way around that. But actually, she could articulate really well that it was really distressing her and she knew she wasn't a normal self. Thank you very much. That was really, really interesting. I've definitely learned a lot from that case and I hope everybody who's listening has also taken away some learning points from that. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon or at amyburbridge and thank you for listening. <laughs>